Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to work our way around the body head to toe, exploring different body parts and organs and their history in a cultural, medical, social sense. We're going to hear from a historian or curator about their work studying these body parts and their history. And we'll finish up each episode by exploring some of the recipes that were developed in history to treat that part of the body. So welcome to the podcast. We are going head to toe around the human body. My name is Daisy Cunningham. I am the college's heritage manager. And I'm Olivia Howarth, and I'm a volunteer with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Heritage. And we are today hitting the veins. I'm quite excited about the veins because I feel like we've reached the point where Whenever we're talking about history of medicine, any body part, we've sort of got looming in the background humoral theory. We've definitely touched on it before, but we haven't really got into it. But I feel like now we've got to the veins, we've, you know, we've essentially got to blood because that's what the veins are, are kind of all connected to. It feels like it's time. So I think humoral theory, if I remember correctly, is to do with the idea that the body has four humours in it. Black bile, yellow bile, phlegm, and blood. And for a body to be healthy, all four humours need to be in balance. And if one of them is too much or too little, that could indicate illness or bad health. Is that yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, you nailed it. it. It feels more complicated. And I, and I feel like they've tried to make it appear more complicated because it gives it more legitimacy or it means that as a medical professional, you know, you you have the elite knowledge. But, but the base level is exactly what you've talked about. And then they keep adding more layers just to confuse people, I think. I remember various layers and how the humours align at different times of the year and seasons and which one is hot, which one is cold. I mean, I, if it was too simple, you wouldn't need to pay somebody to help you. <laughs> On a cynical level, it, it feels like a lot of professions have historically made their professions appear more complicated through complex language, lots of Latin and lots of layers of complexity of potentially quite simple things. And certainly, you know, sort of pre-modern medicine, pre-laboratory, pre-vaccine, all those sorts of things is relatively basic, but then with many, many layers just to sort of confuse the layperson. So yes, just to very, very quickly add a couple of those extra layers. So we have, as you said, Olivia, the four humours. These correspond with the four elements, earth, air, fire and water. The four seasons, spring, summer, autumn, winter, the four ages of man, childhood, adolescence, maturity, and old age. And as you said, Olivia, hot, cold, moist, and dry. And so how you treat someone who has a humoral imbalance will depend on what time of year it is, what age they are at, um, where they geographically live, what gender they are, all these sorts of things. So you end up with this very, very complex sort of system where, as you were kind of hinting at, Olivia, you'll go, ah, you have too much black bile well, it's the winter. 
and you're a child and you live in Scotland and you're a woman, so you have to eat chicken or whatever. <laughs> um, so yes, it, there's and there's lots of different ways that you rebalance humours. And I think one that we're definitely going to talk about because it's particularly connected to the veins is the bloodletting and the leeches. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so again, all these different, this very kind of, this concentric circles of interconnectedness, which is all very complicated, will tell you where on your body you need to be bled. It could be from the arm, the leg, often the opposite part to the part that's afflicted. And it's all about balances. But it also tells you how much you need to be bled. And there's this thing called heroic bleeding, which is oh. basically bleeding you almost to the point of death. But that's mm. when you are particularly ill. They do love bleeding for just about anything. So there are cases that I've come across in the records where someone's condition is basically blood loss and they will bleed them to treat the extreme blood loss. I, I, I could kind of see the logic up until that point. And there have been a few famous figures from history who have been sort of famously heroically bled. One of them was George Washington, the American president. So it's in the same way that there is heroic surgery. It's the kind that's only undertaken in order to save a life. So it's heroic on the part of the blood letter rather than the person who is being bled. Um, the idea that veins carry blood from the liver and arteries carry a mixture of air and blood. That's what Galen thought. As I understand it, Galen did think that it feels like an awful lot of medicine. We talk about ancient Greece or we talk about ancient Egypt as the sort of originators. Probably some of this stuff is quite a bit older than that, but we just don't have the evidence to know. I have an interesting segue into Shakespeare. There's a line in Love's Labour's Lost where they are kind of criticising someone's poetry for being in the liver vein, means that it is in the vein of the liver, which is thought to be the seat of sexual desire and passion, possibly because it was believed to be where blood originated and blood makes you hot-headed and passionate. I mean, that makes sense, even if it's not being used in a very literal way by Shakespeare, there's clearly an assumption that the audience will understand what that means. Mm -hmm. So there's an, presumably an assumption that that this is this is a term that people will go, oh yeah, I know, I understand. So it's in the sort of popular consciousness. Completely unconnected to that, but <laughs> I got quite interested in varicose veins, which get their name from the Greek term meaning great plaque, which makes sense. I have not done the primary source research, but according to historians, the first known illustration of a varicose vein is on a votive offering, as an offering to the gods, either for general health or for very specific this is a problem I have with this part of my body. Can you please help me? I have seen a picture of this votive and I think it is the latter reason because it's like a side relief and it's a man holding a leg with a big pulsing vein in it. So there's various different treatments for varicose veins at various points in history. But the thing I really liked that I found out while researching this is there's a particular quote which is completely removed from any sort of context, which is from Plutarch. 
which is, I see the cure is not worth the pain. And I've seen this quote all over. If you look it up, you'll see it. You know, there's a very standard sort of quote format that you probably see on Facebook communities of, you know, a quote put over the front of a waterfall or a field or a mountain or something. <laughs> and you're like, oh, this inspires me to be a better person or something. And what they fail to mention is that Plutarch is talking about a warlord who's having the varicose veins removed from his leg. I mean, that's something about how painful it was. I enjoy the the disassociation of these pithy one-sentence quotes that are just used in all sorts of ways and nobody has checked <laughs> to see, <laughs> oh, it's actually about varicose veins. Okay, yeah. There's the one they do for spider veins, which are the like skinny ones after they invented the hypodermic needle. They tried lots of different things to get rid of spider veins, including absolute alcohol, ferric chloride, iodine, mercury. Spider veins, I don't think, other than the aesthetic downside, mm. I don't think there's anything medically an issue with them. I might be wrong. So now. it's 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 a it's a lot to go through for yeah. for a as you say, an aesthetic outcome. You have given me a very nice link there. Um, because one of the other things I was thinking about in the context of veins was intravenous injections, which is obviously what what all that is about. And I was looking up the history of the um, hypodermic syringe and intravenous injections, and it turns out that it is way more complicated than I thought, because the hypodermic syringe is not really one thing, it is a collection of things. There's no kind of big bang to, we didn't have a thing. Then Bob over here invented a thing and now we have it. So the non-hypodermic syringe comes first. Um, so this is basically a, a cylinder that you can use to pour or push something into the body, particularly veins, but also other parts. So it doesn't have a hollow needle, which is an important part of a hypodermic syringe, and it often doesn't have the chamber that you squeeze so early examples are literally just you take a reed or a straw or something hollow, you cut into them and then you pour something into the body. And this is why the hypodermic syringe is a total game changer, because what they can do before then is very limited. So you have an Irishman, Francis Rind, who creates the hypodermic needle. So that's a hollow needle, but he doesn't have a proper functioning syringe. So he's using a hypodermic needle, but he doesn't have the actual, the body of the syringe part. But there's two people who invent the full hypodermic syringe using Rind's needle and then combining it with a proper syringe. And they do it in the same year and we don't know which one came first. And I have to admit that I'm biased here because one of them was a president of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. He generally we is the one winner. that's given privacy. <laughs> uh, and another was a, a Frenchman called Charles Pravis. And they both did it in 1853. But there is a logic to why Alexander Wood, the Scottish guy who was president of our college, gets primacy. Number one is he published on it. Pravaz didn't. And the other reason is because Alexander Wood tested it on a person and Pravaz tested it on a sheep. So mm. Wood proved that it worked on a human. But I am aware that I am Scottish. If I was French, I would definitely be arguing the other way. <laughs> I, I'm aware that I am kind of arguing my side, as it were. Just uh slightly do a 180. You were saying with the syringe, you can measure how much you're putting in or we're taking out as the case may be. If you were bloodletting, what would be the indication of stopping? You would usually bloodlet 
into something so you wouldn't just freely bloodlet so that's why you usually have a bleeding bowl which depending on the type and model might have measurement levels or you would just know by eye um but you would usually have a a specific receptacle that the blood would then go into and this is one of the problems with leeches and this is why once technology advances people kind of start using what are called mechanical leeches basically like a little box with little knives in it and you press a button and the the little knives just kind of spring out um leeches and bloodletting continues to be incredibly popular into the 1800s and leeches actually become difficult to get your hands on there are leech farms there is a leech shop on princess street which is open 24 hours a day selling leeches but it is still difficult to get your hands on them they obviously die they don't last forever and especially if you're in a rural place, you might not have access to leeches. So you could buy a mechanical leech, which you could just carry around in your pocket. So it's much more convenient. But the other advantage to this is you use one of these little mechanical leech devices and you can bleed into a bleeding bowl. But a leech, an actual real leech, consumes the blood. So that is very difficult to measure. You would be trying to make a guess based on how swollen they got veins are quite often described in natural terms as branching or tree-like and da Vinci had that diagram of man of veins. The annotation says cut between heart, liver, lungs and kidneys so that you may interiorly figure the venous tree. I think there's also um, in our current exhibition, Skin Alert History, um, <laughs> We have a book by a French gentleman called Alibert, which is a tree of dermatology. So it's all the dermatological classifications put onto a tree. You know, the earliest classifications, the earliest sort of organising of science happened in, in botany, particularly Linnaeus, but others as well. And so it feels like for quite a long time, medicine and, and physicians are following the system of Linnaeus, sort of almost copying it, trying to apply it to medicine. So there's a lot of botanical style use of terms and structures and things. I don't know whether it's that it gives medicine legitimacy to say it is a structured and organised science in the same way that, that botany is, or whether it's just the botanical way of doing it is the only way that exists for a long time. It feels like that tree concept is used in various different places in medicine. In our case study today, we're going to look at one aspect of the history of medicine that we can never quite get away from, bloodletting. The origins of ideas around bloodletting lie within the humoral system, which dates back at least to the time of ancient Egypt. From there, it spread to ancient Greece, where many physicians concluded that all diseases were the result of an excess of blood. The humoral system is quite complex. Although the principles were changed and adapted over time, essentially according to this idea, there were four humours in the body. Yellow bile, black bile, also known as collar, phlegm and blood. Alongside these humours, there were four corresponding temperaments. You could be phlegmatic, choleric, sanguine or melancholy. These corresponded with the four elements, earth, air, fire and water. The four seasons, spring, summer, autumn and winter. The four ages of man, childhood, adolescence, maturity and old age and hot, cold, moist and dry. So maintaining health was all about balancing these four humours. If you were ill, that meant your humours were out of balance. 
a person could have too much humoral blood, and so bleeding would make them more balanced. It would make them colder and drier. Bloodletting became the standard treatment for a wide range of diseases, from plague, cancer and smallpox, to acne and headaches. Bloodletting took different forms. Leeches could be applied to the skin. Where the leech was placed depended on where the disease was located. Headaches, for example, meant a leech was placed on the face. Leeches were so popular in the 1800s that at its peak, Britain imported over 6 million leeches every year. Another method was cupping, during which the patient's skin was punctured by a lancet or other sharp tool, and then their blood collected in a cup or bowl. Doctors often recommended what they called heroic bleeding, which meant bleeding a patient until they became weak and unable to move. Often the bleeding was only stopped when the patient fainted from the blood loss. During the 1700s and 1800s, belief in humoral theory declined, doctors turning to other, more progressive-seeming methods of treatment. Bleeding, however, still remained. Different ideas were put forward as to why it was useful. Perhaps it calmed the patient, or generally cleansed the system and removed bad or diseased blood. As doctors became cautious and more selective in their use of bleeding, bloodletting increasingly became the work of folk healers or unqualified practitioners. In this short clip, Dr. Kristen Hussey explores William Harvey's book, De Motu Cordis, published in 1628. So eventually, in 1628, he comes out with this 70-page book, uh, De Mortu Cordis. It has a, a much longer Latin name, but I'm not a Latin speaker, so I'm going to just stick to this. Um, now, if you've ever seen an original copy of De Mortu Cordis, you'll notice that it's very small. It's only 70 pages long, and often it's, it's not in a very good nick because it was really cheaply printed. Um, the cost of publishing it in England was considered too high, um, particularly because the book was not going to be a success. Harvey knew that it was not going to be popular. So he sent it out to Germany and had this small, cheap book printed. Um, and in its dedication, Harvey, again, does a really clever thing, and he attempts to cover himself with his two greatest allies, the crown and the college, uh, the two C's, perhaps we can call them. And the initial dedication is to Charles I, uh, for whom he serves as a personal physician. Um, he dedicates it to his most serene king. Um, he prays his goodwill and his accustomed graciousness on this new account of the heart. Um, this is what he says to the king. Um, and then here you can see he follows it up by dedicating it to his, uh, his colleagues at the college. And he says, this book's appearance is under your aegis, excellent doctors. It makes me more hopeful for the possibility of an unmarred and unscathed outcome from it. Very dramatic language. And from your number, I can name very reliable witnesses. So again, this sort of refrain to witnessing uh, his discovery. Um, so it's got a lot of build-up now. I feel like we'll probably have to talk about what is it that Harvey actually discovered um, that was causing so much trouble. Um, and in short, for the first time, Harvey accurately describes the human circulatory system. Um, he looks back at Galen um, and says, you know, actually, what's written here is incredibly contradictory. Um, it doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't stack up to what I'm seeing in my uh, dissections. Um, he also thinks it's important to note that the discoveries are drawn exclusively from dead bodies, and this also makes Harvey different. Harvey is vivisecting animals, so he's able to see the living heart in motion, and, and it's a very important part of his research. Um, so he then goes on to investigate the heart and its function in all animals, including humans. Um, so for 
in his initial experiments watching the heart of vivisected animals, he wonders about the speed of the heart, the amount of blood that seems to be passing through it, much more than the heart as an organ itself could possibly have need of. And he starts to wonder whether there isn't in fact two systems of blood, but actually one. What if the blood comes through the veins into the heart where it's pumped out again at a high speed through the arteries and round and round the body? Um, and this is, I mean, Harvey really says it best himself. Um, he says as the conclusion of his experiment, it's absolutely necessary to conclude that the blood in the animal body is impelled in a circle. It is in a state of ceaseless motion and that the act or function by which the heart performs them is by means of the pulse and that it is the only end of the motion and contraction of the heart. And so he demonstrates that the blood is expelled from the heart in systole in its contraction, its active state, and refilled during diastole. The blood is brought to the lungs to be oxygenated and returned to the heart, passing through the ventricles without any need for these mysterious pores, which don't exist. That wasn't a real thing. Um, and most importantly, Harvey shows that you actually have a finite amount of blood in your body, and it's going round and round in a circular motion. He also discovers the various purposes of the valves, the, and that's the one-way flow around the body. Um, so he goes back to Fabricius. Um, He's not entirely there. He doesn't explain the entire circulatory system, partially because he doesn't actually have a microscope, so he can't see your capillaries. He doesn't quite understand the interchange there between the veins and the arteries. But really, the foundation of Harvey's theory is very much how we understand the human circulatory system today. Welcome to Recipes of Yore. We're going to explore some unusual medical recipes from the past. The way in which the word recipes was used in the past is a bit different from how it's used today, so it could mean recipes for cooking, for medicine, or even recipes for cleaning products or cosmetics. Very few of them were treatments we would recognise in the 21st century, and certainly none of these should be tried at home. Recipe books are filled with treatments for all sorts of diseases which involve bleeding or opening a vein. Possibly one of the more unsettling examples of blood-based medicine is this one from a recipe book by Peter Taylor, dated 1785, to, quote, Make a powder of your blood. Dry it upon a griddle or in a frying pan. Keep still stirring it about with a knife until you think it dried enough upon the fire. Then take it off. Let it stand upon the griddle or in the frying pan till cold, but still keep moving it about. After doing this, you may pound it small any way you please. Note, it will keep in a bladder for seven years. But let it be observed, the blood of one person will be no cure to another. Everyone must use their own blood. Bleeding is one of the treatments most analysed and discussed by those recommending it, and Taylor is no exception. At the end of his recipe book, he includes a section which discusses the value of bleeding and how to use it. Bleeding in the left arm, for example, is good for headaches and for falls. Bleeding a pregnant woman will give her a healthy child. What time of day you bleed will depend on the stage of the moon, and you must not bleed in December, January or February. And, Taylor cautions, quote, Let none open a vein but a person of skill. I am surprised to see so many pretended blooders, or rather manslaughterers, and more surprised still to see people trusting themselves into their hands. There are three sorts of persons you must not let them bleed you. The first are such as I have just been speaking of. 
the second are trembling hands. Thirdly, let no women bleed you but those who have gone through a course of midwifery at the college, for those who are unskilled may, through downright stupidity, cut an artery. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at RCPE Heritage, and we have a Just Giving page, RCPE Heritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.